Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And uh, today I am going to do another episode of Ask Buck. Uh, You know, we used to just do one of these every quarter, but as it turns out, we have so many questions uh, that we're now sort of doing a quarterly series of them. And uh, one of them always ends up sort of in the holiday season. And that's kind of where we're at right now. And uh, hopefully you are enjoying the holiday season for what it's worth this year. You know, next year will be a better one, I promise. Uh, I think it's going to be, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the next year. Hopefully you are too. I think it's going to be uh, not only, uh, you know, you know, the ability to just kind of be able to, you know, go places, go to concerts, have our, you know, well formula meetups. Uh, but I think the economy is going to go absolute gangbusters. I really believe that. I know people are still in this mindset that, uh, you know, things really suck. And of course they do. And, you know, we may still have a bumpy ride for the next six months or so. But listen, just think about it rationally for a moment. And you think about all the things that you want to do when this COVID thing, when this pandemic thing is over, right? You want to travel, you want to go to vacations, you want to spend money. And I think that is going to absolutely create a uh, phenomenal economy for us. So that's the good news. So, uh, so keep plugging away. Now, before we begin, I do want to remind you that there's a website called wealthformula.com. Wealthformula.com is the home of the Wealth Formula podcast, and it is uh, the place to go for all of the resources that are associated with this show. There's a lot of things that you can sign up for there. There are, you know, including the Investor Club. The Investor Club is, of course, for our accredited investors. You're basically an opt-in for that to participate in our deal flow. There is an onboarding process involved. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you are an accredited investor, you should definitely check it out and stop getting off the sidelines. Now, one thing I can mention outside of the Investor Club, which you should consider, you're running out of time for a lot of things this year that are going to impact 2020. But if you're looking for things that have significant tax benefits, uh, I do uh, suggest you take a look at WFVelocity.com. Uh, if you're an accredited investor, this is a uh, fund where we are doing ATM machines. I have been investing in this fund myself, uh, I think going on four years, uh, and there's never been a mispayment. It's just a really uh, nice sort of 
uh, you know, it's uncorrelated. It's different. It's a true cash flow play. And man, 100% right off of these things is a nice, uh, nice thing too, if you can do it. Um, of course, it is a passive investment, so that needs to be offset with uh, passive, uh, passive losses. Uh, passive losses need to go with passive gains. So anyway, uh, we will get into all sorts of the dynamics of that. Uh, again, if you're interested in that, go to uh, wealth, um, go to wfvelocity.com and check that out. Uh, you are running out of time, but we still have a couple of weeks. We've extended the deadline to after Christmas. So wfvelocity.com. Now, uh, so we have lots of questions today that we're going to get to, and we will get to them right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Okay, welcome back to the show. Uh, and let's begin with our questions. Uh, we've got a lot of them. We won't finish them in this show either, so we're going to have another Ask Buck for sure. Uh, I'm trying to group these questions sort of according to topic so we're not you know, kind of all over the place going back and forth, but um, it's a little challenging because there's a lot of questions here. So I will do my best. And the first set of questions is really related to this thing that we call wealth formula banking, uh, which, um, as you know, I'm a big fan of. Uh, if you don't know what that uh, is, go to wealthformulabanking.com and check out those uh, those webinars. There's one for wealth formula banking. There's one there for um or Velocity Plus. Now, I, I am a huge fan of these um, these kinds of strategies that fall under the auspices of uh, life insurance retirement plans. But there's also, you know, this notion of cash flow banking, otherwise known as infinite banking. You know, all sorts of different names. We call it wealth formula banking because the way we do it and the way we design these things is optimized for the purpose of investment. So the first question here is from Jason, Jason Beck, who writes, Buck, I'd like to revisit your take on using whole life insurance in a, quote, be your own bank, unquote, type application where one borrows against the cash value to invest with. I have looked at this a few different times, but have not yet gotten comfortable with it. This go around I am looking at in relation to doing it through a C-Corp MSO, or management service organization. I guess where I get confused is the concept that Christian and Rod propose that the interest return on the cash 
is compounded, whereas the interest on the amount borrowed is simple interest. Seems to me, if you always have the maximum amount borrowed, that is, continue to add your borrowed amount with additional loans against the policy as it becomes available, and keep it borrowed to invest, then it is effectively compounding that interest as well, thus negating any interest benefit. Clear as mud, right? That's the question. So, yeah, I mean, uh, and, and you're right, Jason, except for the idea is that you don't keep just borrowing. You actually do pay it back. You And so that's why the, there's a significant value uh, to, you know, it's basically what you're looking for is the arbitrage, right? So you're not letting these things, um, you're, you're not never paying back the loan. Uh, you are paying it back. You're just paying it back to yourself. But, you know, uh, I wanted to make sure that I got some good answers for you. So I am. I have one recorded here. I have a couple answers recorded from Rod Zabriskie of Wealth Formula Banking. So I'm going to play that now, and then I'll follow it up with any additional comments. So let's see what Rod has to say on this topic. Hey, Buck. Hey, Jason. This is Rod Zabriskie, and I'm more than happy to help answer this question. I think the place to start is to just talk about the premise behind Wealth Formula Banking. And what we find is we meet up with a lot of cash flow investors, in other words, people who are investing in business or real estate or notes, and uh, they find a really big inefficiency in the way that the cash flows as they're doing that. So specifically what's happening is, is they're saving up, they're kind of building up their account inside of their savings account or, or a money market account, and then they go out and use that money, they invest it, it creates some cash flow that comes back to them. They'll flow that back into the savings account, build that back up and go and do it again, right? Just this whole idea of velocity. But what happens is uh, they get pretty uh, discontented with the idea that the money is just not really doing anything for them when it's between deals. So what Wealth Formula Banking is doing is it's allowing, it's creating a, a system, a way to do the exact same investing, but by flowing the money through the Wealth Formula Banking policy, we're just able to capture growth that's tax-free and some of these other uh, this arbitrage between simple and compound that, uh, that Jason is, is talking about. So in other words, uh, I'm building up my opportunity fund. Now I'm going to do it inside of this whole life policy. And then when I'm ready to go and invest, then I take that money, I go and invest it. It creates the cash flow. I flow it back into the policy to build it back up. So again, it's the same model. I'm just able to capture some additional efficiencies. So I think the, the idea behind Jason's question is that, all right, well, what if I'm just always able to capture every dollar and get that right back into an, an investment uh, and it doesn't have to go back to my policy? or my, my opportunity fund, regardless of what I'm using for that. Well, I think um, m what my experience tells me from the types of investors that we work with is that that's, while good in, uh, in concept or in idea, there just always is downtime for that money. In other words, let's say I'm, uh, I'm, I own a rental property. As I receive those monthly rents, I don't have a new property that I can use for you know 500 bucks or a thousand bucks, whatever that and that monthly income is. And so I have to have a place to put it while I'm building back up so I can go and, and find another opportunity to, to invest that money. As great of an idea as that is to just always have every dollar uh, working for me, inside of this cash flow investment world, 
there just always is downtime for, for some of those dollars. And so whether that's for a month or a year or five years, um, we're just creating a system where, where we can capture that. And so flowing that money back into my policy and to, to replenish it, to, to be able to go out, back out and do it again at some point, as a part of that flow, it's covering the interest on that loan. And so that's what keeps the interest simple. And, and while at the same time, the, the cash value that's in my policy, it's going to continue to grow, which it's going to do either way, right? Whether I take a loan against it or not, it's going to continue to count compound and grow because it never leaves the account when I, uh, when I do my investing. So we're solving a problem for cash flow investors that is unique to a cash flow investor. In other words, when they have those monthly rents or those quarterly distributions, annual distributions coming to them, and they're not immediately deploying that money, there's some downtime for those funds, then this wealth formula banking creates a, a huge efficiency that they just can't capture anywhere else. One thing that I would add that can make a big difference with this that Christian and I have been looking into recently is we always talk about using loans from the insurance company, which is the easiest, the the most direct way of doing this. There are actually banks out there that will uh, make loans still using the cash value as collateral for the loan. So it's the same model. We're getting a loan using the cash value as collateral. In this case, when we go to the bank, uh, we can get lower interest rates, right? With interest rates being where they have been recently, um, we're actually seeing some banks offer uh, loans like this in the three, three and a half percent range. And so if the insurance company is offering 5%, but I can get three through the bank, then obviously that's a lot better, right? I, I can capture more of that arbitrage if I'm paying interest, but it's at 3% while I'm continuing to earn at the 5%. So... That's another thing that, that I think people uh, could benefit from. And we always suggest, hey, go to your banks that you already have relationships with. See if you can, if that's something that they do. And if so, then great. Uh, if not, get in touch with us. We have banks uh, that we have relationships with where uh, we're, we know that we can do this. And we'd be happy to uh, facilitate that if that's something that you would be interested in. So if that's the case, uh, go ahead and shoot me an email, rod at wealthformulabanking.com. That's Rod, R-O-D, like dog, at wealthformulabanking.com. Okay, so bottom line is, again, as Jason said, this stuff uh, is always clear as mud, right? But um, And I should point out also, if you're confused, uh, as I was a little bit, I think what happened with uh, that recording was Rod was uh, initially recorded the first part, and then he had some other ideas, so he recorded it again. It sounds a little bit different from where he did it uh, the second time. Anyway, listen, here's the deal. Let me just say the idea is you are, there's an arbitrage. Again, as um, Jason mentioned, when you have a cash value in this, it's growing at a compounding rate. Say it's five and a half percent. And when you borrow it, you're borrowing at a simple rate. So that alone uh, it, and your money continues to grow at a compounding rate, even though you've borrowed the money at a simple rate. So that is the concept between being able to invest in two places at the same time with the same money, which is pretty good deal if you can get it. And that's exactly what wealth formula banking is. Now, I think to answer Jason's specific question, I would go back to this simple, I think I'm answering the question here, which is 
Well, if you're doing this and you're borrowing, uh, the math suggests that you're also compounding the debt. And that is absolutely true, except for the fact that you need to understand that uh, the reason that this is really good for cash flow banking is that you want to always make sure you're covering your debt for the year. So if you have an interest, if you have a, a loan out there for 5% at a um um, 5% simple rate, you want to make sure during the year that you pay 5% simple rate for the year. Okay. So that's really important unless, because if you just let these things sit with paying the interest, then you're right. Then the interest itself gets compounded. But again, the idea is you're going to create an arbitrage. You might be getting 10% somewhere else in uh, your uh, using your banking money to leverage further, and you might be borrowing that for five percent, and so that's going to give you an additional bump. Now the numbers are pretty compelling when you do it this way. If you look at, um, you know, again, go to wealthformulabanking.com and you'll see some some examples in in that webinar on wealth formula banking. Uh, we also sent one out recently as it relates to the WF Velocity Fund. But hopefully that answers your question. We'll, uh, you know, we'll circle back. But if this is something that people are interested in, go to wealthformulabanking.com. Now let's go to, um, let's see, let's go to another wealth formula banking question, and hopefully uh, this won't completely confuse you even further. Hey, Buck, this is Josh from Omaha. I love your show. Look forward to it every week. Learn so much. Uh, so thank you for that. I uh, have a question about wealth formula banking. And um, my long-term strategy has always been to to get a policy. I haven't done that quite yet, but it's in the in the cards or it has been. And it seems to me that uh, even now, more than ever, with these low interest rates, um, you know, you you should find a different way or a different vehicle to to have liquid you know funds that you can tap into, and that seems to be a good um, alternative to what we have considered in the you know traditionally. My concern is uh, the interest rates currently and um, specifically whether if the U.S. goes negative and and what that means for the viability of these policies. I know in the in the you know past it hasn't been a worry and these companies have performed well, but we're in weird times. And I just uh, wanted to see if you had a comment on that. Thank you. Great question. So. The key here is understanding that there are two components to the uh, compounding return. One is a guaranteed one, which is typically about 4%. And so it doesn't matter what the interest rates are there. The dividends are based in part on interest rates. Now, dividends have been paid by these companies every year through the, uh, you know, through the Great Depression, hyperinflation, et cetera. However, again, I want to bring in the expert so here is Rod's answer to that one. Hey, Josh, this is Rod Zabriskie, and I am more than happy to uh, address your question. Um, I think, interestingly, I think you kind of answer the question uh, yourself, and that is the, the whole strategy, because uh, the whole idea is to have a more efficient opportunity fund, and we do that, what we're really essentially what we're, what we're trying to do is just beat the bank, Right. If I can inside of my policy do better than what I would otherwise have gotten at the bank, then I'm in good shape. Right. And recently, when we look at the guaranteed interest plus the dividend, uh, the companies have been paying out somewhere between, you know, five and six percent. 
And I foresee that continuing at least for the near future if interest rates were to continue to stay low. And let's just say kind of worst case, like you said, even go negative potentially in, in the U.S., then what would happen, right? Well, that would obviously continue to have downward pressure on those dividends. And let's just say, hypothetically speaking, let's just say it goes all the way to the point where the companies are no longer able to pay dividends. Well, even at the very minimum, even if we only have that guaranteed 4% interest rate that's at play, then we still beat the bank, right? So in other words, uh, right now where they've been at, you know, if if we were showing a a company using 6%, then their net return that they would project would be about 5%. So again, let's say it's worst case scenario. Let's say I start a part of policy today. Uh, dividends go away forever, right? For decades. Um, even in that scenario, my 4% guaranteed interest rate would result in a net 3% tax-free return. And so again, even in that scenario with the bank's charging me to keep my money there, right? Interest rates go negative, or even if they stay, you know, historically low and, and basically at or close to zero, then, uh, I, again, I'm, I'm still going to beat the bank. And so, uh, one of the things that I think a lot of people aren't aware of is the kinds of in investments that the insurance companies are invested in are really long-term type of things. And so, uh, 10 years is a, an eternity for interest rates to be this low for you and I, but for these companies, yes, it matters, but it's not as big of a deal, right? That's why they are still offering, you know, that five to 6% even given that. So they're in, you know, 30, 40, 50 year types of bonds and notes and other things like that. And so quite literally, they're still getting the earning interest on things that they were got into back in the eighties. And so uh, obviously those things will mature, right? A 30-year th- bond that they were in, in in 1990 is maturing this year. And so they're going to put that in something uh, that they can get now. And so that's why the dividend rates have been coming down and will continue if you know for as long as the interest rates stay low. But again, they'll still have some things, you know, a 40 or 50-year type of thing where, where they, or even, a, you know, 20, 25-year thing where uh, where they're still getting really good rates on those things. And so uh, they can they can weather a long-term storm like this more so than, than what you or I could. But uh, again, even if it goes to the point where, where they just drop to that, that bare contractual minimum of the 4%, even in that situation, we still beat the bank as far as what we can do with that opportunity fund. So... I think it's a great question. I think it's a fair question. Um, and, and yet that this is one of the reasons why we like these mutual life insurance companies is just the long-term nature of what they are and the way that they do their, uh, their planning and their investing and other things like that, because they're, they are in it for the long haul. They have been and have just fared really well, even through, you know, we've talked about it before the great depression world wars, and so that's uh, those are the types of things that they're doing that, that help them stay resilient against things like this, even over a long term like it already has been and, and looks like it will continue at least for the next few years. So I think that's a really good answer. And again, I think the the point here is that I think just to emphasize what Rod is saying is we still believe that we'll always beat the bank. Right. And we always beat the bank. And so if you can get, you know, this sort of arbitrage and if it's still 
you know, guaranteed fixed return of 4%, you're still going to do better uh, there than you are going to with the bank. And you're still going to get some kind of an arbitrage. So, um, you know, as far as the other thing that I think is really important to understand is, um, you know, that these companies, again, just to emphasize what Rob is saying, are the strongest companies in the world, really. I mean, they are the longest standing. You take a, a company like Penn Mutual, Mass Mutual, that have been around for 100 years. And as Rod said, they paid dividends even throughout the Great Depression, even throughout, uh, you know, the world wars and hyperinflation and bank failures. And if you go back into history, what you realize is that a lot of people who live through the Great Depression, it's one of the few things that they actually invested in uh, was, uh, was uh, you know, permanent whole life insurance because it was the one thing that kept paying even when everything else stopped. So it's a good question, but I think in many regards, I think like, um, you know, you've, you've kind of answered it in the sense that we've still are going to beat the bank, right? That's, that's, that's the bottom line. Uh, let's see, let's shift gears a little bit for those of you who are tired of hearing uh, about uh, wealth formula banking. But remember, you really should learn about wealth formula banking um, because I think it's one of the most powerful things you can do out there uh, to really amplify what you're already doing with your other investments. It's not, I don't look at it as investment. I look at, at it as a strategy and um, a strategy of actually amplifying what you're currently doing. Um, you know, if you look at the, uh, you, if you look at like, you know, a single unit of uh, ATMs, I think the pro forma that Rod was showing, it was crazy. Like you ended up with an additional 20, 30, $40,000, uh, you know, at the end of, seven years because all you did is because you used the, um, you know, use the account, uh, you use the wealth formula banking instead of a, uh, bank account. It's, it's a huge difference. So anyway, check that out, go to, uh, wealthformulabanking.com and, uh, hopefully that'll answer more questions for those of you who are still wondering what the heck we're talking about here. Okay. Let's see. So next question. Good morning, Buck. Uh, my name is Bill Jones, and I'm an experienced active and passive investor. And I have a question about um, multifamily markets. And I'd like you to uh, tell me what, in your opinion, are the top four metrics that you look at when considering a good multifamily market to invest in. And in the order of the most important first, would be great. Thank you very much. And you have a great day. Bye. Well, Bill, that's a, it's a good question. Um, but what I will say is that ranking the metrics, uh, exactly sort of in a one through four type way, it's a little hard because they're all sort of intertwined. So let me start with what I think is the most important metric or metrics are really hand, they go hand in hand. They are, uh, good jobs and population growth because these tend to go hand in hand. People tend to move where the jobs are. So, um, you know, usually you're not gonna, I don't know how you rank those. It's sort of a chicken or the egg thing, right? Uh, and that takes us ultimately to our next metric, which is the political climate of the market. Because, listen, I live in California and there are, you know, parts of this state like the Inland Empire that have tremendous growth, that have, you know, 
significant upside. But I want to, you know, invest in a place that is business friendly because I don't want my jobs to leave the market that I invested in. I also want a landlord friendly market where I'm doing business. You know, there are lots of nuances to this stuff, though. Um, Like, for example, if your job growth is pretty much revolving around one industry, well, that may not be particularly stable to invest in either. I mean, so that's something to consider as well. We've seen boom and bust markets revolve around the oil uh, and gas market, for example. And so you've had lots of jobs and then those jobs go away because it's sort of a single point failure that market starts to you know, have trouble, well, there goes the neighborhood, so to speak. So, um, so I think the political climate. And then finally, some of this stuff for me is based on a macro view of what's happened uh, you know, in terms of shifts in the country. For example, Phoenix Scottsdale has all of the elements of jobs and population growth. It's business friendly. And in addition to that, we know that there's a migratory pattern that seems to be established where there's flight from California to Arizona. And that's also good for us to understand, uh, you know, for the future, not just for the numbers we're seeing now. We, you know, we, it makes me feel very confident in that market moving forward because I know California is just getting tighter and tighter. Uh, by the way, I, you know, I know a lot of you don't like California. I love living here. I just wouldn't invest here. And that's just the bottom line. Um, you know, things are going to get worse and worse business wise here. It's, it's a tough place to do business. Um, and I know people are going to move out for that reason. I know people are going to move out because taxes continue to be a particular problem. There's a lot of flight to, um, to Texas as well. And, and I know people, <laughs> I know people hate the fact that there's so many Californians moving, um, you know, to Texas, but you see a lot of that in Dallas. And by the way, Dallas is another market that might still really be my favorite, um, market of all, or at least, you know, in the top two with Phoenix Scottsdale, it continues to grow like gangbusters. Um, and frankly, Texas is just a great place for business. You know, and even if you look at a place like Houston, now Houston used to be, uh, you know, frankly, too oil dependent, uh, but now it's got all sorts of economic diversity. Uh, it's, it's frankly, it's really cheap to buy there in terms of comparing it to uh, the, you know, the value of actually building. So there might be, there might be some, you know, real value in Houston still. And in that regard, there may be some, you know, potential short-term upside that's even better than other markets. But really, we need to try to buy in places that are, um, you know, that are growing and stuff like that. In Houston, the one other thing to pay attention is, well, you probably want to stay away from places that seem to get affected by their thousand-year floods because they seem to be having them every couple of years. But anyway, bottom line is what we want to see uh, in is real growth in jobs and population. We want to see a good business climate. And yes, I would also add that nice weather helps too. By the way, uh, in my opinion, you you have to always be on the lookout for uh, you know this sort of false sense that you should be going into tertiary markets because when market gets when markets get hot and they are hot they they actually are hot the ones that are hot um, before are even hotter now because there's a flight of capital from other types of investments and there's money sitting out there and, and it's only going to get hotter. And when these markets get hot, 
you know, investors, uh, especially unsophisticated ones, will make the mistake of diving into these tertiary markets because they think the yield is better. When in fact, there's not like real substantive, you know, reasons to invest in those areas. And I think if you look in the last major cycle, the the one that comes to mind for me is Oklahoma City. And everybody was starting to look at Oklahoma City because, well, it seemed like you could chase yield there. You had a little bit higher cap rates, et cetera. But what was going on in Oklahoma City? Not a whole lot. I mean, I'm not, you know, dogging in Oklahoma. It's just that it wasn't like there was a bunch of companies moving into Oklahoma, you know, still oil and gas type place, et cetera. But, you know, I, I think that was a big mistake. I think people are still, uh, you know, still getting hammered because they were chasing those tertiary markets. Um, anyway, that's that's what I got on that. So let's uh, let's move on to the next question here. Hey, Buck, this is Brent Kahn from Israel. Hope you're doing well. You've talked about cryptocurrency in the past and how it might make sense to have at least a small amount invested as an alternative, potentially uncorrelated investment. Given these uncertain times and the potential pressure on traditional currencies uh, brought on by the unprecedented debt levels countries currently are taking on, I'm wondering if you think it makes sense to up the percentage of your investment funds that you allocate to Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. Wondering what you think. Well, uh, Brett, good question. Uh, let's talk about Bitcoin uh, and you know other alternative cryptocurrencies separately because I do think they are different. I and mean, Bitcoin is clearly the safest of the cryptocurrencies. It's not going anywhere. It's not one that I'm worried that just disappears. I don't care what Peter Schiff says. He's wrong about that. Bitcoin is here to stay, right? Um, and in fact, I do believe that eventually we're going to see, you know, a hundred thousand dollar Bitcoin. I mean, we're back to, I think our all time highs now. I don't know if this is the round, um, you know, I think we're like, you know, eight, between 18 and 20,000 again, with some volatility here. But uh, but listen, I, I think that this is here to stay. Uh, however, as much as I like Bitcoin, I don't consider this a safe haven asset at all right now. I really don't think that that it, it's there yet. It's simply too volatile. And for that reason, I personally would look at it as something you should and, you know, potentially buy because of rather that you shouldn't buy because of you know global monetary policy because i don't think uh right now uh bitcoin is like gold where you're looking at it as something that is hedging you know paper money uh, and I will say that I do think that there probably will be a time when Bitcoin prices truly stabilize and then it becomes like digital gold. But I don't think that's I don't think that's where we are right now. And that may be, you know, 20 years away still. I will say that I do think exposure to Bitcoin is probably a pretty good idea for most people in their portfolio. Um, but, I, you know, in fact, I would say maybe everyone's portfolio and I don't want to give you financial advice, but I do think that that is something that you ought to be considering because it is something that's going to declare itself in one way or another as, as something that's going to be a major part of the world's economy in the future. But I still would suggest that this probably go into what, you know, you would call your asymmetric risk allocation, which, again, I would personally, in my opinion, limit to less than 10% of investable assets on a yearly basis, right? Now, 
as far as other cryptocurrencies and let's okay let's say bitcoin and ethereum um i'm not really considering them uh quite as volatile but the other ones i think these are still extremely risky investments uh, so much so that I don't even put them in the same category as Bitcoin, of course, uh, when I when I consider where, you know, where where and how much to allocate. Listen, last time there was a big Bitcoin bull run like there kind of is right now. Right. I mean, we're right back where you are. The alts went all, along for the ride and they're almost like penny stocks and people made a ton of money if they timed it right and got out. I, for one, made a lot of money, but then I lost it because I didn't get out because I thought they were going to continue to go up. Uh, but again, I don't see it as an investment. I mean, this is something I'm looking as an asymmetric thing. Um, I'm gambling uh, on these things, right? But uh, and, and and so, but we have to see right now um, what's going to happen with this alt market, this altcoin market, because even though last time uh, the alt markets caught up and they went crazy. And I know Tika Tawari says they're going to do that. You know, the reality is we don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, uh, if you, 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 it could happen. And if it does shoot, you know, I, for one, I'm going to make a lot of money because I have a lot of alts, but, uh, I just don't know the answer to that. Um, now if you want to take a shot at 10 X growth, uh, and you're not worried about that money, having maybe even an equal chance of going down to zero, you might want to grab some, you know, some of these alternatives or some good projects out there. Again, I'm not going to recommend anything, but I'll just, you know, throw out some names like, you know, Chain, Chainlink and Binance Coin. And, um, you know, obviously I still think uh, uh, HBAR, which is the Adira Hashcraft stuff is really good. Uh, Definity is going to be a great project uh, when it finally comes out, I think. So these are things that, um, I think that are sort of uber hyper uh, risky type things, but on the other hand, they they could end up making a lot a lot of money. Um, so the problem is again, I don't know if the alts will rally this time or not. You know, historically they have, and if they're gonna rally, you would think they would rally pretty soon because Bitcoin's been rocking and rolling. But who knows? Maybe it, you know Bitcoin needs to start heading towards forty, fifty thousand again for that to happen. Bottom line is, on these types of uh, cryptos, I would personally suggest keeping investments um, far smaller than Bitcoin uh, for the ones for the altcoins. They could still go to zero, but I am confident that Bitcoin will not go to zero. Now, uh, I will say, and one last thing. I just don't think Bitcoin's in a position where I think you should necessarily be looking at it, you know, as a true hedge uh, to the uh, American economy. Okay, let's see. Next question. And this one's pretty similar. Hey, Buck. Love the show. What are your current thoughts on Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? So, Chuck, again, same question. Kind of give you the... Uh, um, you know, the big picture in my view. But listen, I think limited exposure is a good idea. I think if you want to do something where you're getting exposure of the market uh, and you just want to buy, you know, one one type of, of cryptocurrency, it's definitely Bitcoin. Now, one of the ways uh, that people have done this within our group is, well, there's a couple ways, actually. One is that there's a GBTC, I believe, which is the, um, you know, there's there's effectively a way that you can 
there's a Bitcoin trust that you can invest in and obviously has a premium associated with it. But on the, on the other hand, it kind of goes up and down just the way Bitcoin does. So maybe the premium element doesn't matter. You're just looking for things, uh, the delta on these things. So that's something that you can get, you can invest in just through, uh, you know, if you don't want to actually go buy cryptocurrency, get involved with, you know, the technical aspects of it. That's one way to do it. Another one I should mention that some people in our group are uh, doing is they're involved with the uh, Bitwise uh, Asset Management Fund. That's Bitwise, B-I-T-W-I-S-E. Um, again, not recommending anything. We did have the CEO uh, on the founder on a while ago, smart guy. Basically, what they're doing is they're allowing you to buy the market, indexes of the market. If you might, if you want exposure of the top 10 cryptocurrencies, et cetera, it's not a bad way to go. Uh, requires like pretty much zero uh, in terms of your uh, you know technical skill. It's like buying stocks or anything else. So that would be a way to do it as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that those are the ways without getting really into cryptocurrency, those are the ways to make sure that you actually have some exposure, uh, you know, particularly to a, a burgeoning area, which, you know, eventually there will be some activity. I just hope, I hope the alts take off, um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. All right, here, next question. This one's also from Josh, who I think we had from earlier. Hey, Buck, Josh from Omaha again. I'm going to blast you with another question. This one is uh, regarding safe haven assets, um, and specifically with gold and Bitcoin. And I know in the past you've talked some about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. And with Jeff Booth on this week, uh, maybe realize that you hadn't talked about that much lately. So I'm curious where you stand there uh, nowadays. And then secondly, if I remember correctly, you were somewhat bearish on bullion, but uh, um, had dipped your toes into the mining space. And so I'm just curious if you're still considering that or are still investing there or what you think about the gold space. Thanks again. Uh, good question again, Josh. Um, listen, I think um, at this point we've probably said enough about cryptocurrency, um, but let me talk a little bit about bullion, about gold a little bit more. I, I don't think I have, you know, I don't think I'm ever really bearish on gold. I just, frankly, just don't really see the point, okay? So let me explain myself because I know in this, especially in this alternative investing um uh, you know, podcast ecosystem, I mean, even including guys like, you know, Robert Kiyosaki, et cetera, that, you know, gold is uh, somehow this this thing that everybody should be, you know, piling up on because the world is about to, you know, hit a zombie apocalypse and, you know, only, only zombies uh, or zombies only take gold. They only take gold and silver. And so we have to be prepared to pay the zombies. Um, of course, I, I'm being a jerk. But listen, what is gold? It's a storage of value. That's what it is. And one that hells, held its uh, value longer than anything else, uh, I would say, in the history of mankind. An ounce of gold back in the times of Christ would have bought you a nice toga and a pair of sandals. And now an ounce uh, will buy you a nice suit maybe maybe a pair of shoes depends on you know how fancy 
uh, you are. And, you know, and in that regard, as a consistent store of value, I do not think of it as an investment, right? I mean, a store of value is different from an investment. I think of gold as a store of value that is a hedge against inflation. Gold is the anti-dollar. And in my opinion, that's the best way to think about it. We think of gold becoming more expensive with inflation, but really it's just a dollar losing its relative value against gold, which never loses its value. That's kind of the way I look at gold. So if you want to hedge against inflation, sure, gold might be a consideration, but let me tell you what I, the way I think about it. And again, these are my own opinions. What are your other options? Well, pretty much anything that increases in value with inflation is an option, right? So what about real estate? Is real estate a hedge against inflation? Absolutely, it is. But real estate also happens to throw off cash flow. Real estate is absurdly tax beneficial. Capital gains on gold are like 28%. Um, you know, listen, the other thing to mention about my experience, well, yeah, I did, um, have some experience with, uh, mining stocks, you know, in this Canadian, uh, market. So uh, I'm not really doing much of that anymore, but yes, I've been involved with this part, um, of the investment world, uh, as, as part of my asymmetric risk profile though, again, uh, you know, and I, I should say I haven't had very good luck. Some people have, but, um, you know, the businesses that I was banking on were ones that mine for gold and other precious metals and natural resources. Um, and I find that to be a lot more interesting because, again, think about it this way. I'm not, you know, again, I'm not investing in gold. I'm investing in a company that mines for something that is a store of value, right? So it's a business. Bottom line is I'm simply not convinced and I have yet to be convinced after having so many people on the show, listening to so many people uh, on other podcasts, et cetera, people I respect, I'm just not convinced that there's any advantage to owning physical gold or you know something like a GLD stock instead of buying real estate. No one, no one has been able to convince me otherwise. Now, one last point I'll make there is some people say, look, hey, even Warren Buffett's involved in gold now. Yeah, I get it, but Warren Buffett is involved with, uh, not with gold. He's not buying GLD. He's buying companies uh, that are mining gold. Again, he's buying businesses that are generating um, cash, and and gold itself doesn't generate any cash. So, so I think that, in my opinion, if you you know if you're uh, you know if you're really bullish on where gold is headed, you might be better off buying into like a you know, a, a royalty company or something like that. But I, I'm not a huge fan of physical gold, and I, I don't know that I'll ever be convinced, and only history will prove me right or wrong on this topic. So let's see. I think we probably have time for one more. So let's do it. Hi, Buck. My name is Mike from Denver, Colorado, and I am a real estate agent. This is my first year as a full-time real estate agent. I've spent the last several years um working on myself, just learning as much as I could and figuring out the path to become my own boss. And as a first year real estate agent, I made one, over $100,000 in gross commission income. I plan on doubling that or tripling that in these years to come. But even it, when I do that, I will still not be accredited for three years. Um, so I have kind of 
two or three questions here um, that relate to that and also relate to my rep status. Um, so my first one is, uh, w if you were in my position and you had $150,000 to invest or $200,000 to invest, would you continue to build relationships with operators and sponsors that you know um, who might not be as large as someone like uh, Western Capital um, or a syndicator like that? And would you try to do a JV deal with them on a smaller apartment complex? Or would you save that money and do something else to kind of speed up becoming accredited, whether that's taking um, the series, the SIE test on FINRA and the series 65, which you do not have to be sponsored for? Um, or would you hold on to that money and invest it with somebody that you know and trust? Um, as on a smaller level as a JV or possibly a GP if I'm able to um, pull more weight on that side of the deal. And my next question is, as far as rep status is concerned, I don't see any content that makes it very clear on if I need to spend more time in my investments than I do performing everyday residential kind of real estate activities that I already do in order to use my passive losses against my active income. So I would love some specifics and clarity on that uh, as well. So those, those are my questions. Um, thank you so much for your content and everything that you do for this community. I'm truly grateful. So thanks. Well, Mike, lots of lots of questions, good questions there. So let's let's start with the rep status, as you called it. Now, what is this? This is the real estate professional status, the real estate professional designation uh, for your, you know, uh, that that you can file on your your tax forms uh, that the IRS recognizes. Um, you know, we've talked about it on this show a bunch of times, but it's sort of uh, from a tax efficiency standpoint, it's a little bit sort of like the holy grail for. Uh, tax efficiency. Uh, in a nutshell, again, I'm not a CPA, so it's you know I'm not giving you advice, and I could be wrong about everything. Blah blah blah. Don't sue me, etc. But you know, the the law, as I understand it, is that if you spend 750 hours per year or more in material participation in real estate, and you don't do anything else for more time than that, then you can file as a real estate professional. So what's the big deal? Well, as you know, real estate depreciation results in a lot of paper losses because you get all this depreciation, passive losses, passive losses, right? But for most people, these losses will be considered passive losses and can only be used against other passive income. That includes, uh, you know, the, the stuff like from your real estate, of course, and your other investments, but also other potential passive business activity as well, like surgery centers, infusion centers, things like that, uh, if you are structured that way. Now, we've, we've emphasized over and over the value of having passive income, and this is why, because most people cannot achieve this uh, real estate professional status, because if you have a full-time job, forget about it. Um, but what the real estate professional status does is it takes those losses from real estate, the passive losses, and because you are a real estate professional, it activates those losses. And what that means if you are a real estate professional and your, say, your spouse has a W-2 job and you're filing jointly, well, guess what? 
in theory, and again, I'm saying in theory because I'm not a CPA, I'm not, I shouldn't be saying this to you, but um, let's just say I probably know a little bit about this stuff. So in theory, your active losses uh, that you're generating as a real estate professional, and this is from depreciation, et cetera, should be able to offset income from your spouse, even if that's W-2 income. Again, that's not tax advice, but that is a hell of a good deal for that couple, right? And so that is what the big deal is about this uh, holy grail of a um, you know concept called a real estate professional. If one, uh, at least one of two people in in, in, a, in a relationship have that. Now, Mike, in your case, you're essentially asking about your own active income presumably through brokerage and you've got that active income and you're wondering if you can offset, uh, you know, any passive losses you're generating from real estate uh, against that active income from your brokerage. And again, I can tell you that I'm not going to give you any tax advice, but I have seen uh, my real estate colleagues um, effectively, uh, you know, uh, take those, uh, take that, uh, you know, those active incomes and write off their losses against it. But I definitely check on this with your CPA. In reality, I think a lot of it just depends on two things. One is, you know, how robust is your real estate portfolio? How much uh, time uh, can you realistically claim that you spend on your real estate property? Um, material uh, time that you spend in your investment property. I mean, if you've got one single family home and then, uh, you know, it's generating like, uh, you know, a couple, you know, $100 a month or $150 a month and you're making $100,000 a year in brokerage income, it may be a little difficult to justify that. But again, this is really where you need a good CPA because, you know, you've got, uh, I know for a fact that there are real estate agents taking on that, um, you know, that designation and using their uh, activated real estate losses to offset active in- active income. But I, I can't tell you in what scenario uh, that can be done. You need a good CPA is what you need uh, to navigate that part. Now, as far as the question on what to do with $150,000, 200000 again, um, I'm not giving you financial advice, but personally, I definitely would not hand it over, uh, you know, to some inexperienced syndication groups. I will tell you something, um, and you can take that for what it's worth. Experienced syndicators do not accept unaccredited investors. They just don't because they don't have to. And in taking, you know, uh, you know, investors who are not accredited, they're taking on a far greater amount of risks. So who does take it? Well, that leaves groups that really need your money and are willing to take unaccredited money. And in my experience, that is not going to be a very well-experienced group, uh, a group with a good track record. And, um, you know, otherwise, frankly, they probably wouldn't take your money if you're not accredited. So what do you do? Well, I don't... um, I don't know anything about your experience and your own abilities and aptitude for making money. So I can't comment on doing JVs and that kind of thing, but certainly if you're young and energetic and you think you can do it, then that would be a good use of your money. But if you want to invest passively, you got to get accredited. And of course we know that accredited has been traditionally defined by, 
the money, right? You're accredited if you make $200,000 per year, $300,000 filing jointly for at least two years with the expectation of that being the same going forward or a million dollars outside of your personal residence. And um, But recently, as you suggested, the SEC has broadened the definition of the accredited investor to include various certifications, uh, including, I believe, the Series 65. You're going to have to look that up. So if you want to make quality passive investments and you're not going to be hitting that uh, mark uh, from the financial standpoint anytime soon, there's no question in my mind that I would get qualified um, through the Series 65 or you know whatever other FINRA ways you can do that uh, before I ever considered handing my $150,000 of hard-earned money to inexperienced or amateur real estate syndicators. I hate to be harsh. But listen, we're not about, you know, this this group is about, you know, uh, finding experienced, uh, you know, or I should say our accredited investor group is about finding experienced partners um, that have got a tremendous track record. And as much as we hope uh, that the amateurs uh, do, you know, do well for themselves, that's not where we're putting our money. Anyway, um that's uh, that's probably all we have time for questions today. Uh, we will be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the second episode of Ask Buck. Uh, we will have uh, at least one more. I have to figure out how many more questions we have here. There are quiz quite a few, I should point out. But um, I want to thank you for listening and uh, have a, a good holiday week. Um, I do want to also remind you that if you like these kinds of uh, Q&A shows and you like to, you know, this kind of format, you might really enjoy Wealth Formula Network. Wealth Formula Network um, is, uh, starts out with a, uh, it's actually a course. It's at wealthformularoadmap.com. Might make a really good holiday gift, actually, if you want to send that to somebody. But a, um, it's a course with a lot of smart people like Ken McElroy and Tom Wheelwright, et cetera. But after that, you get membership into this thing we call Wealth Formula Network, which is our private community. And what we do there is we have these biweekly Zoom mastermind calls. Uh, they usually go for about 90 minutes. Uh, and, um, you know, it's it's a fun little community. If you're a type of person who likes geeking out about personal finance and your friends and family don't want to talk about it, well, you found your group. Uh, there's also, you know, a Facebook group, et cetera, on top of that. But it's a great community. Think about it. Again, great possible Christmas gift uh, to yourself or to somebody else. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Save You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.